0: Well, as we've been doing for quite a while, we started this at the beginning of the new year uh, in January, but we've been walking ourselves through one chapter a week of the Gospel of Luke. And today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 16. And so, as we do each week, I want to invite you if there's any observations, questions, uh, what have you, from the text, uh, this is your chance to share. What did you encounter in Luke 16? I'll later in yeah. <laughs> our uh, some and uh, this is what I was able to put together. Um, chapter 16 is not necessarily a short chapter. Uh, it's not necessarily a very long but it only really covers two topics compared to some of his other chapters where <laughs> all the topics are covered all of the chapters. Sure. In uh, two separate parables, Luke treats the danger of wealth although in different ways. In between these parables is a series of wisdom sayings from Jesus. Mm -hmm. The parable of the unjust steward is one of the most puzzling in the Gospels. A dishonest manager, informed that he will be fired, provides for his future economic security by making friends of his master's debtors. The lesson is not that Christians should be dishonest and self serving <laughs> The it is is not the manager's parent commission of fraud that is praiseworthy, but rather his prudence and resourcefulness. He used the means available, available to him to maximize his benefit. The wisdom sayings include the warning to money-loving Pharisees: The wealthy may
1: appear to others to be upright, and they think to themselves that they have God's approval. But God's standards of judgment are different from those of humans. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus illustrates again Luke's theme of the
0: reversal of fortunes. Lazarus, who is not described as virtuous but only as poor, is comforted after death with Abraham. The rich man, whose only sin is that he is rich, and perhaps that he, may be, he did not feed on hungry Lazarus, is faced with eternal torment and pains. Abraham advises that those who do not heed Moses and the prophets will not be convinced to repent even by a resurrection. This saying obviously foreshadows the rejection that will continue to bring the Christian's message
1: even after the resurrection of Jesus.
0: Mm, Very good. Yes, good observations. So what's really interesting, and David pointed this out, is that this isn't a long chapter. As far as Luke goes, this is actually a little bit shorter, although like all of them, fairly long. But there's minimal content in terms of number of issues addressed. So there's only really a couple of bigger issues addressed. And unlike other chapters where Luke will go through multiple teaching uh, paragraphs of whole topics and then move on to another, and then it it fills up a chapter very quickly. Uh, This one is really focused on just a few things. Yeah. I
1: have these two parables, um, but it basically comes down to these infections. Mm-hmm. Um, like like in the first parable, you can you, you try to do that, you know, helping those in that mm-hmm. a certain amount. Um I didn't instances <laughs> like that, and also with and with that. or of Or there was there a heating morning. Mm-hmm. He was trying to tell me that, uh, you know, can kind I of came to sense of you know. Mm-hmm. They, they over there, so, i of our parents, But he still, you know, they don't have the name of us mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But the thing is, you know, we can do it wrong, and we do do it, in, similar to that, but we, we become self-aware of what, what's going on and what we're doing, or we work our sermon, and it, it brings out that, that topic, and we apply it ourselves we can change. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole thing. It's, it's, that it's not to we a change. It's to change who we are within mm-hmm. to be able to, to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. That's, a good, that's a good observation.
0: Yeah, there's Clearly, the motivation and the point behind Jesus telling the parables he tells in this chapter is to invite the Pharisees to do the very thing you're saying, to change. Like, it's clearly targeting the stuff that they are prioritizing or idolizing that they need to be called out on. For one, that's what David mentioned about, well, the Pharisees, and it even says it explicitly in the in the text is that they love money, and their love of money is getting in the way of doing the actual thing God calls them to do as religious leaders, which is to follow God's leading in their life and to honor all people and care for all people, including the poor, which is actually spelled out pretty clearly throughout a lot of the Old Testament. Care of the poor, care of the, the uh, orphan and widow, care of the sojourner and, and, and immigrants through your land, like all this stuff is built into the Old Testament, And the Pharisees have basically selectively chosen what they want to honor of God's law, and Jesus has to call them out on it. Other thoughts, observations, questions? It's
1: good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just had really nothing to do with, not that much with Luke 16, but personal uh, thoughts. While I was reading through, I mentioned it. Gospels and Luke, obviously, two weeks ahead of what we are doing here. And so as I was reading ahead, I would get thoughts in my mind as what I would want to put down on the paper. Yeah. So
0: I kind of, weeks ahead, kind of prepared a bit of what I was going to say, which kind of helped. And I finished the Gospels about uh, a week or two ago, and I'm now in Acts, and since Luke, the same writer, the style is very similar. And as I'm
1: reading acts, I'm thinking, okay, this is what I'm going to say. This is what I'm going to write. Oh, wait a minute, we're not doing it. <laughs>
0: like, Maybe we will. <laughs> no, you got <laughs> me started.
1: <laughs> but, yeah, I keep in my mind. As I'm reading it a yeah. little different this time through, mm-hmm. I was reading it with the idea of, you know, what could I share? Yeah. As I'm reading the book. And yeah. I was about to continue that into the book that I like, oh, really that's Little did you know that
0: not only were we doing the book of Luke, but we were actually doing really good Bible study technique, which you happen to just carry over to the next book. (laughs) Which is great. Really, really great. And it's basically Luke's volume two, right? We get a really, really important first edition of what happens in the early church. Who knows, maybe we'll have to jump into Acts after Luke. That'd be good. Any other thoughts or questions? This is a unique chapter which includes some very challenging and mysterious stuff. I I love what David said in pointing out this parable of the uh, dishonest manager. It has different names. Uh, Mine calls it the parable of the dishonest manager. Um, And what you have in, in this parable is a picture, a story of a wealthy man who had a person in charge of his wealth and his resources. And likely he would oversee the servants and all that sort of stuff. So, a person of high rank within the kind of household of this wealthy person. Now, what I find interesting, and this is something that I had never thought of before, this is my first time seeing this in Luke 16, is that this is the second story in a row of someone who's squandering property. Because in Luke 15, which we studied last week, we have the parable of the prodigal son, in which he is just goes off and squanders property, right? He wastes the money and the resources that were his inheritance, which, like we said last week, was radical for him to ask for up front when his dad hasn't died yet, right? So all there's all that stuff to it. That's followed up directly by another story of a person squandering resources, doing the very same thing. And he's told, he's warned, very early on in the parable that basically, hey, you're in trouble. I know what you've done. And we don't get all the details of what he's done. We just know that he has squandered property. I'm going to look for the specific, yeah, in verse (laughs) 1, right off the bat. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he's been charged, right? Someone has made the accusation that the manager is misusing the resources of the wealthy owner. Uh, And then the whole procedure of what that guy does is interesting because he does all this stuff to make it easier for the debts to be paid by changing the debts. There is like, that's like basically fraud, right? He's changing all the receipts, so to speak. But you actually get a window from Jesus into why he's doing that. Because now he realizes, okay, I'm going to get caught, right? It's almost an admission of guilt, I know what I did, and he's not happy. So I'm going to make them happy so I have somewhere to go when he kicks me out. Right? That, that's what it actually says in the parable itself. i want to find this passage here. What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm dismissed, people may welcome me into their homes. Right? The whole motivation for doing what he does in the receipts is to make it possible that, hey, remember what I did for you? Remember that favor where I lowered your debt a little bit so that you could pay it off? Well, I got kicked out because I was getting dishonest, but I need someone to stay. Right? That's it. That's the motivation For doing all of this. And some people read the parable and they interpret it as if Jesus is some way, somehow praising the character. But you don't have to tell a parable where there's a hero. There may actually not be a hero in this parable. It very well could be. Jesus is showing this as an example, and I think this is one way to interpret it. He's saying, There are this is the way your culture works. You you kind of deal with money or with, with truth in a way that's fluid and dishonorable, and this guy in my story, he's, he's like you. Like, basically, he's telling the Pharisees, this is what you look like. You fudge the line a lot. You lie. You deceive. You are unjust. It's not right to change these numbers. It's fraudulent, right? And then in the end, Jesus is teaching doesn't really point to the guy as if he's a hero, but he does say, "If you're faithful in little things, that will prove that you'll be faithful in big things. If you're dishonest in little things, that'll prove you're probably going to be dishonest in big things." Right? What I love about that short little paragraph is that that's uh, it's like a, a commentary on power. So we can look at power as something that we have some of, all of us have some power, but there are obviously some people in the world who have a lot of power, right? And power is not good or bad in and of itself. It just is. It's a thing. It's part of human reality. We have powers there. But power amplifies what's already there, right? So we see how someone, and this is Jesus' logic in verse 10 through 13, Someone who shows themselves faithful in little stuff, with a little bit of power, right? Just basic daily things. They're showing you what they would do if they had really big power. They would be faithful in the bigger things, because they're choosing to be faithful in the small stuff, right? And then, the same thing is true of you going the other direction. If we were dishonest with the small stuff, then it's likely we'd be dishonest with the big stuff power will amplify what's already there. I don't need to tell you when you look back through the scriptures and the texts, all the stories of the Old and New Testament, how people in power regularly messed up up big time. Their character was revealed, right? There is emperor or ruler, one after another, through the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament, who are examples of people with tremendous power and who destroy and harm and hurt people with that power. Because their character can't handle the power. Right? Go back to the book of Exodus. Pharaoh is, has no problem with throwing away all the babies, the Hebrew babies, as population control because he's afraid of them rising up. Right? He wants to maintain control over his slaves. Right? Power reveals his heart. Fast forward to the exile. We have characters like Darius, Nebuchadnezzar, and fun names to pronounce, number one. But number two, they're really challenging characters because God elevates leaders like Daniel and others to call them out because they're messing things up. They're being very harmful leaders. Mordecai in the book of Esther, or not Mordecai, but um, Haman in the book of Esther is another example of a leader who had great power who was using it in a way that wasn't helpful and was dangerous for other people. New Testament, you've got King Herod, you've got Caesar, you've got all these leaders who have tremendous power, and their power amplifies what's already there. So power in and of itself isn't bad, but how we use it, right, can be an exi- exhibition on what is wrong or unjust. So thought I, I found this interesting. This is my first time noticing the bridge between Luke 15 and 16, We have this son in Luke 15 who squanders property. We have this manager in 16 who squanders property. And Jesus then teaches about what it looks like to be faithful, to do the right, small steps. Those are evidence of a heart in the right place. Jesus moves into verses 14 through 18. And in here, we, we talk, uh, he talks about God knowing our hearts. So verse 15, So he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. You can't serve God in money, Jesus says. Money is just a thing, right? It's something that we have. But the love of money, Scripture says, is the root of all evil. Not money itself, but the love of money. So the Pharisees, this is what Jesus has to call them out on, is their love of money, their love of power, their love of things which are they're putting above their love of God. That's followed up with another parable, a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, one of the challenges of this parable, I think, is that people want to look at this parable and interpret it as if this is how reality actually looks. Like, there is a literal hell of flames, right? That that's what's in the parable, therefore there is an actual hell. But Jesus is telling a story to illustrate a point, right? We can talk about it, and there are a whole lot of things to talk about, and I'm willing to talk about them, related to what we know or how we believe the afterlife looks. But the point of the parable is actually about this life, Right? It's actually about what we're doing in the present tense. So, this guy who lives an exuberant, opulent, extravagant life, uh, eating as much as he wants, living in lavish wealth, while on his doorstep is a guy who's in desperate need, right? Whose physical health is terrible, and who has no food, and has no basic needs are not met, right? The juxtaposition of those two is Jesus saying, hey, Pharisees, check this out. Here's a story. Here's a guy who had everything. Everything that you prize: Money, wealth, power. And he just consumed it. It was all for him. But he neglected this neighbor, this guy, this brother, outside the gate, who needed just the basic necessities of life. And when they die, the end result is, this guy is honored because... He didn't have anything, right? You had the power to give him what he needed. And you squandered it. That word might be like the the main word for Luke 15 and 16, squander. To have something God gives us, a gift, whatever it may be, not just money, but any kind of gift, and to waste it, not using it in line with God's heart and character, right? So this is a fascinating parable, and it's aimed at the Pharisees yet again Luke just doesn't pull any punches uh, in writing these stories because he makes it very clear hey, those guys back there, they have Moses and the prophets and the rich man says it's not enough (laughs) and then Abraham has to tell him well if that's not enough, nothing's going to be enough. They're not going to listen to God's appointed leaders and prophets then who are they going to listen to? They're not going to listen even if someone comes back from the dead, which of course is a little allusion to what Jesus is going to do at the end of, this, of the story. So there's a lot of there's a lot of challenging stuff in this chapter. It's, you can't really sugarcoat it. You can't read Luke 16 and say, oh, this is an easy, life-hearted chapter, <laughs> right? No, this one is tough because it really, when we see how Jesus is willing to call out the Pharisees, we have to then put ourselves in a position to look in the mirror and say, okay, what is there potentially in this chapter that God is calling out on me? Am I squandering anything? That's a great question to ask ourselves related to this chapter. Is there anything God has given me that I'm squandering? A spiritual gift, financial resources, physical resources, time, relationships. Is there something that we're squandering that we need to take a step back and say, Lord, help me have wisdom? Help me be wise so that I can use these things faithfully in service of your kingdom. Help me to be a person who's a wise steward of the gifts and resources you give me, not a foolish person who asks for my inheritance up front and throws it away, or who uh, dis- is dishonest with what I'm stewarding under my Lord and Savior, but someone who's honest with honesty and integrity and character leads a life uh, of, of wisdom. So big ideas in this chapter include management and stewardship. And God says all we have to do is ask for wisdom. The book of James, very straightforward. You want wisdom, just ask for it. God will give it freely to anyone who asks. It's the easiest thing for God to give us, is wisdom. So we just ask for it. That could be a great daily prayer. Lord, give me wisdom today. And do it every day. Don't just limit it to this week as we talk about it from this text. But let that become a daily prayer at the beginning of every day. Lord, give me wisdom today. Wisdom for whatever I encounter. Wisdom for whatever challenges I may meet. Whatever people I may talk to. Give me wisdom. Another main topic of this chapter is faithfulness. Faithfulness does not require big steps, it just requires steps in the right direction. Right? What I love about all the encounters Jesus has with people is that he doesn't, it's not uniform. He doesn't say to one person, you do this, and the next person, you do the same thing they did. With every individual person Jesus encounters, he has a different step for them. Because it's based on their journey, and their wiring, and their soul, and what Jesus knows they need. Right? The rich young man who comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus knows he needs to give up the idol of money. He says, you just gotta give that up. Sell what you have here to the and come follow me. Jesus said the same words to that man as he did to the 12 disciples. He could have had 13. Can you believe that? We could have had 13 disciples. But we don't know this guy's name, and we only know that he walked away sad because he couldn't let go. And Jesus was grieved by as well. I wanted him to be a disciple. He asked him to do the same thing he asked Matthew. Matthew left all the money on the table. Imagine being Matthew, by the way. This is a really good example because. Matthew shows us the counter to this whole critique of Luke 16. Matthew, or Levi, has two names in the, in the Gospels, was a tax collector. Very wealthy position. Regularly, the reason they were wealthy is because they charged this exorbitant amount above the tax, and that was how they made their money. So as you might imagine, Jews didn't like the tax collectors, because they were usually Jews who had sold out to Rome. Well, Jesus walks up one day to a tax collector named Matthew and says, hey, come follow me. And Matthew walks away from a table covered in money to go follow Jesus. It's an amazing story of letting go of money to follow Jesus. He does it, and he's a gospel writer. (laughs) He's included as one of the four to write Jesus' story. That's a very powerful story. So you can hold Matthew and the rich young man together and see the two choices they were given, right? And they went two different directions. Another big idea from this chapter is God and money. I once I once heard Superintendent Mark mention, and I think it was in a sermon, I forget when, where he was preaching or when this took place, but I'm pretty sure it was uh, Superintendent Mark who was preaching a sermon talking about our culture and how there's this commonly held belief that if we have this much, and it's always more than what we currently have, If we had this much money, we would be happy, and we would also not feel stress. And it's it's interesting, but Mark said, and I remember very keenly, he said, it's always about 1.25% or 125% of what we currently have. So we we always have this mentality that it's just a little bit more than what we currently have. And he said, it's interesting because even people who have tens of millions of dollars in world and national surveys exhibit the same belief the same behavior, even though they have way more than they need. But there's still this like, mentality that our culture tells us, if we just have a little bit more, that's the point at which we won't feel stress, and we will finally be happy. And in the end, what's interesting is, I think that that belief is actually based on this idea, or this, this like, denial of the fact that one day we're going to die. You don't get to take anything with you right? And some people live their lives in such a way that they say, well, as long as I get as much as I can while I'm here, that's the point of it all, right? And others discover that the more they give, the more they actually have. And there's a profound correlation with generosity and actual true contentment, where when we think about our stuff as not ours, but stuff we've been given to steward, that's a huge benefit for us, too. We also find, hey, you know what? They need it more than I do. I'm gonna give this thing away that I have, or they need these $10 more than I do because I don't need it, they need it. And there's a correlation there in our culture of generosity and contentment. Lastly, a big idea that I think is really powerful is this, um, What one thing that this parable brings up, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus at the end of 16, is that there's a system in place that makes it possible for this man to just feast and waste and whatever money, that also then leaves this other guy without leaving, without that which he needs. Right? There's a system behind that parable. In this culture, Jesus is calling out those who hold the system in place. The Pharisees do, and this is really a unique. Um, this is a unique component of studying the Bible because we don't live in a culture particularly, that tends to think about systems as much as individual real reality, right? Our whole culture, advertising, everything is geared towards your personal experience of life. So it's sometimes very difficult to see systems when they're at play in our culture. But we have them too, and when we look into this culture and study it to understand it, we find that behind the parable is a system a system of oppression that holds some people in poverty and other people get to have all and way more than they need. Right? So Jesus called out those who hold up the system. Hey, guess what? It's not good for you to live the way you live, idolizing money. And really, Jesus is saying it because he loves them too. He wants them to see the truth that they're actually, they're killing themselves by being all about consumption and money. It's actually bad for them, and Jesus wants them to see that. And, not only is it bad for them, but it creates a system in which other people suffer. So you translate that whole idea of there being a system in the parable to our day, and we realize, yeah, systems that in our day do the same thing. And it's that whole thing I described about a culture in which just a little bit more money would make me feel happy, content, right? That's, that, where did that message come from? It comes from a system that says money is the end goal, when it isn't. It's just a thing. And in the end, you can't take it with you. So our goal, as followers of Jesus, is to search for wisdom, which is invaluable. You can't put a dollar sign on that. As well as ways to honor and follow God and and have our character be shaped by God's character. As our character is shaped by God's character, we won't only just see the system, we'll also say, hey, this isn't right. I want to change this. How can I help change a system that oppresses some and elevates others so that everyone has an opportunity to truly elevate it and have their basic needs met? That's a great end result of following God. So three simple invitations for you. I already said the first one. Simple prayer every day. Lord, give me wisdom today. That's number one. Second one, take a small step. Like Jesus said, those of us who are faithful in the small things will be faithful in the big things. Every day, take just a small step toward generosity and justice. It can be super small things. It could be, you know what? I I see this cause that I really believe in, and I think this is a really important justice cause, I'm going to donate $5. Small step, And I'm putting my money where my mouth is, though. $5 is $5. It's more than $0, right? So maybe there's a justice issue that really could use $5 of support or time. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to do this. I'm going to help with this issue and help there be a more just society. Third invitation is to take stock of what you have. Not just money and not just possessions, but take, take stock of your time. How am I spending time over the course of any given week? I might spend this amount of time on watching TV or reading or recreation or family time or sleep. Actually measure all of that for one week. And at the end of the week say, where am I not stewarding my time about? Maybe there's something I can do with a little bit of my time that's not about me, or is about an issue that God is really putting on my heart that I should be leaning into. So take stock of what you have, money, possessions, time, all of it, and ask God for wisdom to steward it well. So three simple things. Prayer, Lord Lord, grant me wisdom. Steps toward generosity and justice, and take stock of your resources and ask God for wisdom on how to use them well. I'm going to close with a word of prayer uh, and then invite you to study along with me Luke 17 for next week. We'll dive into that uh, chapter and then we'll continue our journey to Luke. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the gift of time together. We thank you for this very challenging and insightful chapter that does give us wisdom about deep truths regarding our money and possessions, time, stewardship, wisdom. There's so much in there. So help us to see what we need to see. And we pray that this week you would give each of us wisdom every single day. Guide us in wisdom. Pour it into our hearts and minds. Help us to live and lean into wisdom. Help us to be good stewards of the gifts and resources you've given us. Help us to be mindful of the needs of others around us. Help us to have eyes to see the systems that are broken in our culture and in our day, just like there were in Jesus' day. Help us see the systems and help us see people as people who reflect your glory and who you care for and who you want us to love. Thank you for our time together, Lord. We pray a blessing on each of us. And once again, we just pray a blessing on Mother's celebrating Mother's Day today. Bless us as we go. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, you are free to stick around, enjoy some fellowship time, and once again, happy Mother's Day.